Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Second Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is the Word of God. Thank you for having me. My name is Brandon Mallett. I'll give you the rundown from born and raised in Alabama. Y'all keep it pretty cold up here. Uh, It's my first time this far north and much more, I think I have seen more snow in like the past 30 minutes than combined in the rest of my life. Uh, But I love it. It's good to see it. I am married to Cameron McLean. She has actually not changed her name yet and we're working on our third year of marriage. I don't know. She just won't accept it, I guess. But she's actually, she is a speech and language pathologist. She was going through a lot of certification when we uh, were, uh, when we first got married. And if she changed her last name, she would have to redo all these forms. So she was like, I'll just wait till after I'm certified. It's much easier to put in, you know, after I get the certification, I can change it very quickly. Uh, And then the pandemic happened and the social security office closed. So now we're just rocking celebrity status and we're just going to have different last names. It'll be great. Maybe I'll take hers eventually, but no. Uh, So married to Cameron McLean and uh, it's a joy and a privilege to get to be here with you all. Uh, My connection really probably is most strong with Lucius. We worked together uh, at the church that he was previously at in Birmingham, Alabama, but um, our church loves New King Church. We pray for you guys regularly. I'm at Valleydale Church and I work with college students and young adults. So enough of that aside, I want to get into the word today. We are dealing with 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. And as we dig into this, you've heard the word read. I'll I'll read it a couple more times throughout. It's a pretty short passage. Uh, But just giving some context to the letter of 2 Corinthians, there's there's a technique that a lot of commentators or just lay people who are just readers of the Bible. They want to get in the Word every day. To understand the context of what's going on, they'll use this technique called mirror reading. And maybe instead of explaining it to you, I can give you a bit of an illustration. If I were to get a phone call real quick, say, hello? Oh, hey, I'm good. How are you? Right? If you wanted to take a guess at what that person said, what do you think it was? How are you? Right? Right. Great, great guesses. You all get an A plus and a gold star, right? You didn't have to hear what the other person said in order to figure out what it was they said. You can tell just based off of how I responded. And so this is how a lot of commentators are able to figure out what exactly is happening in the background of some of these letters. We look at the, the responses that Paul may particularly have. And as we do some mirror reading throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, one of the things that you're going to see, it's probably one of the most prominent themes. There's this group that has kind of infiltrated the church. They refer to themselves as super apostles. You can see them referring to themselves. Paul's going to make mention of it in chapter 11, verse 5, which is just across the page from where I'm at. He says, now I consider myself in no way inferior to those super apostles. 
And these super apostles are going to bring a lot of charges against Paul. They're essentially trying to discredit him uh, to the church in Corinth. And Paul is primarily going to be dealing with one particular challenge that they're bringing, bringing against him. Let me read these first few verses and we'll see it. He says, Now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble among you in person but bold toward you when absent, I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people, and here's the charge that he's going to go up against, who think we are behaving according to the flesh. And I love how Paul is preparing to respond to this, right? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to challenge these people. You know, he's writing this letter, Timothy's in the room, and he's like, Timothy, I'm just giving you a heads up. I'm going to make a scene. Like, I'm going to make sure they understand that what they are accusing me and charging me of is not okay. And I, honestly, I think about my own life. The th- like, if, you, if I were to give you a list of things that insulted me, uh, maybe walking according to the flesh wouldn't be in the top five. But I think this is really helpful for us as Christians or those who maybe you are trying to learn about Christ today. This is what it looks like for a Christian. We take very seriously walking in the life, in the path of obedience to our Lord. And I wonder how many of us in this room, I wonder for myself, would I take not just the idea of someone charging me that I live according to the flesh, but just the idea that I've not submitted my whole life, would I take it as seriously as Paul is taking it in this passage? He's going to go on, and he's going to use wartime language, right? Here's some of the words he's going to use. He's going to say warfare, weapons, strongholds, captives. Like, this is not some menial little charge in his mind. This is very serious. It's not, I work with college students. It's not the difference between uh, an honors diploma or just some regular degree. For adults, it's not, the, it's not, you know, the difference between a good or bad end of year review, whether or not you do or don't get a couple extra thousand dollars in your salary next year or not. It is to Paul, and as it should be to us who follow Christ, a matter of life and death eternally. It's a very strong tone that Paul sets in this passage. And I mean, I just want you guys to be aware, as, as I was reading through this, uh, this really is just kind of borne out. I, I had a, uh, just a personal quiet time in this um, a couple weeks ago, and it just like marked me. And this is born out of a lot of that, out of a lot of my own personal conviction that God brought to me. And as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking to myself, am I, am I truly in a wartime mentality? Am I ready to kill sin, right? It's John Owen who said, if you're not killing sin, sin will be killing you. God says to Cain that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, right, to be in charge of him. Sin is is after each of us. We're looking at very, very strong, uh, very, very powerful strongholds. That's the language that he's going to use of what we're up against. As I was, uh, after I read this passage, I I have a dear brother of mine whose name is Kobe. He... uh, was in our college ministry, has graduated. He's a sheriff now in Alabama, and he's qualified for and has joined uh, a section of, of sheriffs uh, that are referred to as the ERT. They're the emergency response team. Kobe works in the jails, uh, and essentially, if they get a report that an inmate has made some sort of weapon, a shiv or a shank, they're planning on trying to attack a jailer or one of the other fellow inmates. If they get word that that or that inmates are getting together and trying to start a riot, Kobe, my friend, is on the team that goes in to break that up. Uh, so it's a very, very dangerous situation. And, and we were just talking about this passage, and I asked him, 
I said, Kobe, I, I mean, I assume that when you hear about the intent that these people have, I mean, they're, they're making weapons so that they can try and kill to, to get out if need be. I assume that you yourself bring a weapon when you're going in to break up these scenarios, right? He said, absolutely. And I mean, I just think to myself, how idiotic, honestly, would it be if, if you hear of someone's intent to murder you, to kill you, and for you to go into that situation unarmed, how imbecilic, honestly, would it be of that? And yet, do we walk around fully brandishing and equipped the weapon that God has given us? Like, are, are we prepared for the war that's, in ha- that's at hand? And again, these are strongholds, right? Like, the language of stronghold, giant ramparts, massive forces that are stronger than you and I as individuals. I mean, even combined in this room, our strength alone together would not be enough to overcome these strongholds. These, we're talking about strongholds of anxiety, strongholds of depression, anger, greed, lust, pride, jealousy, envy, the list goes on and on and on. These are strongholds that have taken up residence in the hearts of people and are, are guiding them. I mean, I would be so naive to think that there are people who didn't come in here and maybe you're sitting in your seat and you feel like you're in shackles. Like anxiety is ruling the day in your life. It makes it hard to get up out of bed because you're frightened of, of what's going to happen to you out in the world. Maybe it's anger. You can't even conduct a normal conversation because you just want to take control of everything and you lash out at others. Maybe it's lust and you can't even have a relationship with, with people because lust has just perverted how you view your brothers and sisters that God has created. I mean, these strongholds that are in our lives, they are very serious. It was, uh, man, it was, so, it was really sad. Um, just this week, I, someone I, I, I really care for, a student in our ministry who I know to be a believer, um, I was invited into a therapy session with them that they were having with one of our biblical counselors, and this person had a stronghold in their heart of depression and anxiety. Um, they're struggling with whether or not God loves them. They're struggling with whether or not they can go on. Uh, they don't want to, man, it's just these are very serious things. Like the enemy has a strong hold within us. And Paul is talking to us about the weapons that we need to be able to dismantle these. So let me pray for us. Let me pray for us, and, and we're going we're gonna to really dive into it. Father, we come before you, and um, I pray by your Spirit that you would show us what are the strongholds that have taken up residence in our hearts. I pray today that... You would help us to see even hidden faults that we may have that we're not aware of. I pray today that you would help us to see the presumptuous sins that we commit, sins that we know we are walking in that we should be leaving behind. Pray for states of mind and mental health that, that the enemy is very much using against us. Pray, for, uh, pray against our own sinful desires and motivations. God, I pray that you would help us to know the weapons that you have given us to be very familiar with the provisions that you have made for us, bought, purchased for us by the blood of your Son and applied to us by the power of your Spirit. God, help us to lean into these and to know them well, to trust you and to fight for your glory, Lord. Give us words. I thank you, God, that this whole service rests not on the shoulders of any single person who's got up here, any single person in these seats, but it is on your shoulders, Lord. It's in your hands. It's your strength by which we speak and listen and and pray 
in you we live and move and have our being. And I pray today, God, that you would do a mighty work. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, so, uh, a technique, I, I like to, to talk about techniques for reading the Bible a lot. I think it's pretty helpful. So, uh, a technique for reading the Bible, right? When you're coming to the Bible, even in your own daily personal devotion, um, what's, what's something that you can do in order to be able to, to draw riches and treasures out of the Word of God? There's something that people call interrogating the text. These aren't things I come up with, but somebody else... Uh, I mean, centuries of Christians have been doing this, but it's called interrogating the text, right? When you come to a passage, you put it on the stand, you cross-examine it, you ask it loads of questions, right? Who are you responding to? Why did you use this verb instead of this verb? Are you sure you didn't mean to say this? Why did you use the past tense instead of the present or the future tense or vice versa? What exactly is going on? What, what is the tone of what you're saying right now, right? You ask a lot of questions of the text, and so as I came to this passage and read through it, I'm looking for questions that I can ask, and two questions to me are very obvious that hop up out of this text. Let me read this passage one more time for us, just as brief as it is, and then we'll talk about those two questions. I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble among you in person, but bold toward you when absent. I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are behaving according to the flesh. Although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I think there's two pretty obvious questions that come up. First, what are those weapons with divine power to destroy strongholds? I want to know what that is. And then secondly, what good is a weapon if you don't know how to use it, right? How do we use these weapons that God has given us? And so that's kind of how we're going to approach uh, this passage today. We're just going to answer those two questions. And so first, what are these weapons with divine powers to destroy strongholds? Well, if you go to verse 4, we'll start there. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Okay hard stop. The first thing that we're going to see before we can even get into what the weapons are, Paul's going to tell us what they're not. They are not of the flesh. They are not natural weapons. Why is this important? The world, even amongst Christians, people who believe in God, we so have a desire to handle things in our own power. And there's, I mean, several, several examples that I can give. I'll, I'll give two um, Two, I think, strong and, and prominent illustrations of issues that are strongholds in a lot of people's lives that we try to naturally remedy, and it can't be remedied in such a way. The first one is anxiety, right? We live in an age that's increasingly pre prescribing um, medicines for different mental health diagnoses, and I do want to nuance this for a second. I, I actually believe that anxiety medication, different medications for mental health can be helpful, and let me tell you why I think that is, because that'll go in, into what we're talking about a bit, but we as creatures are what's called psychosomatic beings, right? So psychosomatic is just two Greek words smashed together. Sukos, right, is where we get psychology, so it's referring to your mental capacities, or it can even refer to just your being, your soul, right? Sukos, and then soma. Soma is a Greek word for body. So we are embodied spiritual beings, and our bodies and our spirits, the physical and the spiritual aspects of us, very often influence one another, right? 
when there are things that we do spiritually, it can affect our physical health, right? Um, there are ways that when you sin, it, it can affect you uh, physically. Uh, a great example of this, you go to James 5. Many of you may be familiar with the verse where it says, confess your sins to one another and thereby be healed. If you look at the passage, right, it's easy to think of that out of context and think, oh yeah, right, like you're healed emotionally, it helps you to feel better before the Lord, you're healed in that way. But if you look at the larger context of James 5, it's pretty clear that he's actually talking about physical healing. Like there are instances where people have sinned, kept these sins to themselves. David talks about it in numerous Psalms, and it has physical ramifications upon them. And so here's the deal, as, as, our, as our physical self and spiritual self, these in, intertwined parts of us influence one another. As people are anxious, they step into anxiety, that can influence chemical imbalances, right? And as your chemicals become more and more imbalanced mentally, it can be something that's going to influence you to step into anxiety more and more, further imbalancing the chemicals, being a greater temptation to step into anxiety, so on and so forth. I think that anxiety medication can absolutely be a common grace from God that gives us a reprieve from that spiral, right? It levels out the chemical balances and, I think appropriately used, gives you opportunity to determine what is the root of my anxiety? What am I not trusting God in? I mean, you think about the Bible. The Bible's prescriptions for anxiety is, is no sort of medicine. It's not any sort of natural remedy that they had. You go to Matthew 4, where Jesus talks about the cure for anxiety, and he uses verbs like observe, consider. They're mental exercises, right? It's putting your minds onto God and taking them away from the lies of the world. You go to Philippians 4, and you're going to see the same sort of thing, where Paul talks about don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, right? You are training your mind to think on different things. And that's an example of how naturally we just think that Man, if I just wash this down with anxiety medication, it'll go away, right? And it may give you a reprieve from chemical balances. You may feel better. But allow that to be a blessing from God for you to determine what's really happening underneath, right? What, what's going on that's causing this to begin with? What, what am I not entrusting to the Lord? Okay, so that's one way that maybe we try to use natural weapons. Another instance would be racism, right? And again, let me nuance this. Like, I absolutely believe you should look for and, and vote for legislation that is going to make it to where overt acts of racism are not possible and can't be committed or at least prohibited and punished, right? Like, praise the Lord that slavery, public lynchings are no longer legal. However, you will see that there's very much racism in, alive in the hearts of many people. That's totally an issue that's still happening in the world. There is nothing from Fox News, CNN, BBC, NPR, any news media or outlet that is going to fix the stronghold of racism that is in many people's hearts. There's legislation that can help overt acts of it, but nothing can change the heart except for spiritual weapons. I think we've seen that over and over and over again. So those are just a couple of examples, right? You can't fight strongholds with natural weapons. It's not going to be legislation. It's not going to be medication. Nothing that you or I or any human can come up with on our own will be able to fight against what's going on within our hearts and our, in our soul. So we know what it's not. Now, what is it? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. 
Uh, so, normally what we would do is we would read through the passage, we would say, okay, we know what it's not, now what is it? You read through this passage, and you read through the rest of 2 Corinthians, and Paul never actually really explains what the weapons of our warfare are. And to me, that's really important, right? Like, if, if this is the only means that God has given me to destroy strongholds in my life, I want to know what they are. So, what do we do at that point? If, if there's a term that an author in the Bible uses, and the particular passage you're not looking at doesn't give you enough information, you start to study it in concentric circles, right? So we're going to look at, in 2 Corinthians, does Paul explain further what weapons of our warfare are? And I think if you look through 2 Corinthians, you don't necessarily see anything else, but you would go a little bit out from there. Are there any other letters or correspondences that this author has written where he talks about similar terminology, and he's going to explain it, explain it a little further? Then you go out to the New Testament, right? What does the New Testament say about this terminology? Then you go out to the whole Bible. What does the whole Bible say about this? Well, I think there's a, a, a good reason why Paul doesn't explain it here, and it's because he explains it in a previous letter that he sent to the Corinthians. So turn to 1 Corinthians with me for a bit. 1 Corinthians 2, we're just going to read a few brief verses. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul says here, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, here's what he didn't use. I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, the message of God, the word of God. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Our weapons of spiritual warfare are namely the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Those are, those are the weapons we've been given, and they're inextricably linked, right? The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. The Word of God is empowered by the Spirit of God as he illuminates your heart and gives you visions to understand spiritual things that natural men cannot understand, as Paul talks about. So we know what it is. This is further confirmed if you go to Ephesians 6. Again, we're looking at further correspondence. What else does Paul say about weapons of warfare? You go to Ephesians 6, 17. He's going to talk about the full armor of God. And then he says, and wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? So I think we have it pretty fully confirmed exactly what our weapon is. It's not natural. It's not of the flesh. It is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Those are our weapons of warfare. Now, how do we use them? Right? That's the important thing. If I've got these things and I do not know how to operate them, they are absolutely useless to me. So let's start at the end of verse 4. He says, We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's two verbs, mainly, that he uses to describe how we can use this weapon. The first verb is to demolish. We demolish arguments in every high thing that is raised up against the knowledge, the knowledge of God, right? So we're trying to tear down roadblocks, barriers to believing in God. We're trying to tear down arguments that are raised up against how God has ordered the world, that are, that are arguing against God's decrees of what's right and what's wrong. That's one way that we use God's uh, weapons that he has given to us, and I, I do want to ask you guys, so I, I talked to, um, again, I work with college students, even though we're in the Bible Belt, it's still very prevalent for us on their college campuses. Um, I, I just kind of asked them, are you guys familiar with an argument that's kind of going around the secular world right now that the Bible doesn't 
actually condemn homosexuality. The term homosexual wasn't coined until within the last 200 years. The Greek word that we translate homosexual actually more so refers to child molestation. Are any of you familiar with that argument? Is that things that you've maybe been hearing in, in the culture around here? I'll say this. It's very, very prevalent. When I asked our college students back home if this is something they were hearing, overnight, I mean, almost unanimous. Most of them had said, I've, I've been confronted with this at some point. I mean, this is a really lofty and high argument. And I understand for this culture here, it's something that people are, are really struggling with. I do want to say before I move on, just because we don't have the benefit of knowing each other as well, I don't want to disparage homosexuality as any worse sin than any other, right? All sins are equally damnable before God. Like, we are all eternally, uh, we are worthy of eternal punishment because of our rebellion against God. But I bring this particular instance up because it is a high and lofty argument, right? People are appealing to Greek words, original languages, things that are happening under the text that you can't very plainly see. These sorts of things can be really persuasive and tempting to to kind of throw away what you've known to be orthodox and to start following after. And truthfully, very sadly, I have seen a few students, myself, just like give up on the word of God and chase after these things. So let me give you an illustration. How would we use the word of God to dismantle a high and lofty argument like that? So turn to Romans 1. Turn to Romans 1, and I want to show you just in the plain English text... I want us to see how can we use the Word of God to destroy a high and lofty argument. There's lots of ways and lots of things that the Bible has to say about this. There's lots of reasons that that argument is wrong. But in one particular instance, how can we know just from plain English reading that this is not an argument that stands up against Scripture? So we'll start in Romans 1:26. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with, this is the important phrase, women, and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their bodies a due penalty for their sin, right? So Paul's going to talk about the sinful behavior, and he's going to contrast it with what's the positive natural prescription that God has created for marriage. He says, um, contrary to nature, sexual relations with women. It's not sexual relations with adults. He makes it very clear that the positive example is a heterosexual relationship, right? So even just, I mean, you go into the Greek, that's very clear, right? It's very plain. Even just from a simple English face reading, we can be equipped to hear that argument and say, you might be using fancy words, you might be appealing to the Greek, but just honestly looking at the English, that doesn't hold up with what the Bible says. Like, that that has doesn't stand in line with the rest of the testimony of Scripture about what God's decree of right and wrong is. Now, why do I take all the time to draw this out? Here's what's important. As we're talking about the weapons of our warfare, if you are not familiar with your weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, you hear this argument, you're dead in the water. How are you going to be able to show, how are you going to be able to destroy arguments against God if you don't even know how to hold this thing? And we're faced with hours and hours of content. I mean, we're being berated on every side, front, back, left, right, above, beneath, with culture-conforming, mind-numbing content and things that are trying to uh, dissuade us away from God. 
And I fear that sometimes we get in these seasons of life where we think that a five-minute daily digest of the Bible is going to carry us through. And it cannot. You have to be stayed on the Lord, right? So Paul doesn't only just tell us that. He also employs this technique several times. You can watch him do it. In Romans 3, the main argument that he's going to be addressing right at the very beginning, these people are going to say, the question that they, that they ask before Paul launches into his argument is, why not do evil that more good may come, right? So they're trying, to, they're trying to say, oh, well, if God's gracious, if he's able to work all things together for the good of those who love him, why don't we just get to still do everything that we want to do in the flesh? And then we really can have our cake and eat it too, right? We can have two masters. And what Paul does is he doesn't, he is going to use some of his own argumentation and logic, but he's going to root it in scripture. He takes him back to Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, and he's going to pull from there exactly why it is that that argument does not stand up before the counsel of God. He's going to do it again in Romans 9, right? Romans 9, these people are struggling with God's election, the idea that God saves whom he chooses to save. A very difficult topic and something that many of us in this room may struggle with. And at one point, Paul essentially goes to this, and he says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Does, any, does the clay have any right over the potter? And it, if you're a logic, argue, argumentation kind of person, like, wow, that was really evasive, Paul. Like, you pretty much just said, like, you, you don't know what you're talking about. It's a little bit too high for you. We're moving on. But here's the thing. Paul didn't even make up those words. Paul is, again, going back to Scripture. So that, that language of a clay and potter, you're going to find that in Isaiah, 60, or Isaiah 29, 16, Isaiah 45, 9, and Jeremiah 18, 6. Let's just read uh, Isaiah 45, 16 very briefly. We'll see him use it. 45, 9, excuse me. He says, Woe to the one who argues with his maker, one clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, What are you making? Or does your work say he has no hands? Woe to the one who says to his father, What are you fathering? Or to his mother, What are you giving birth to? This is what the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and its maker says. Ask me what is to happen to my sons, and instruct me about the work of my hands. I made the earth and created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded everything in them. Right? It sounds like Paul's being dismissive, evasive, but really what he's doing is he's calling back on this passage where God's speaking to his people who are kind of arguing against him for making a decision that he made, and he said, oh, yes, thank you, I needed you for your advice. Um, <laughs> I only made the heavens and the earth and stretched them across, you know, the known universe, but thank you for your input, right? And Paul goes back to that, and he says, you have no right to answer back to God. You have no right to speak against him. He knows far more than you do. He created you, right? Be like Aaron's new daughter talking back, what are you doing? Like, putting me to bed like this. Come on, Aaron. But she doesn't, I don't think. It would actually be really impressive if she could at this point. She's only a week old. So those are a couple of instances, right, of using, of using the word of God to demolish and destroy arguments and every high and lofty thing that's raised against the knowledge of God. Now we've got another verb, right? That's not the only way we can use the word of God. We do demolish arguments and every proud thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. But we also, next verb, next verb take captive every thought to Christ, right? Now, again, we talk, we're talking about interrogating the text. When I'm reading through this, I ask a question, 
why'd you use a different verb there? Like, would it not have been suitable just to say, we destroy every argument and high and lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God and every thought that's opposed to Christ, right? I mean, that would, to me, fit really well in the scheme of things. It would sound pretty good. But Paul goes out of his way to use another verb, and it's because he has a purpose for our mind and our thought life, for our mental capacities. And it is, end of the verse, to obey Christ. God could destroy our rationality. He could destroy our thoughts. He could destroy our mental capacities. If you, I mean, if you want an example of that, uh, if you've ever heard of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, emperor over this great, uh, great empire, and he essentially says one day, it's my power that made all this happen. And God says, no, it's not. And he says, you're going to be like an animal for the next amount of years. And boom, like, his rationality, his thought processes, they were done. He was just a wild, savage animal. Like, God could totally destroy our thought capacities if he wanted to, but he has a totally different agenda, and it is to make our minds serve Christ. He wants us to obey God. So, now, how do you take thoughts captive? Well, you take the sword of the Spirit, and you hold it to the throat of your thoughts until they submit. That's what you do. But that precludes you have a sharp sword, right? Uh, when, I, <laughs> when I was in college, I got a theater degree. Um, so I'm like qualified to work in an Applebee's at this point. <laughs> I, uh, I took these, these fencing classes uh, for all intents and purposes. And so those things are, they're like two feet long, those swords. Uh, and so we're like doing all this, that, and the other. And just imagine if one day I decided to show up to class with a butter knife, right? Like, on guard, boom, stab. Like, I can't even get close to you before, like, the match is over. How many of us, like, spend time memorizing the word and storing it in our hearts? Like, yes, we in this room have the same word available to us when it's open. But how many of you, when you walk away, how much of this can you pull out of your heart? How much of this can you employ at any moment? Every verse of the Bible that you memorize, you are sharpening the sword of the Spirit. You're giving it more and more ammunition to use. How do you take your thoughts captive? You have to employ a stronger jailer. What are the prevailing thoughts in your mind, right? What's speaking the most? Is it Scripture? Is it God? Or is it the culture and the, and the different things that are trying to conform you to the patterns of this world, we have to be keeping our minds in Christ. And now, if I'm you, I'm sitting in your chair, it is very easy to think, okay, so the guy preaching is saying that my 30 minutes on a good day, right? Like, if you're me, my 30 minutes in the Bible in the morning is not enough. Like, I have to spend hours and hours in this thing. I mean, yes, if you have the time, spend hours and hours in it. Like, love it, enjoy it, rest in it, find pleasure forevermore in the Word of God, plumb the depths of it. But that's not necessarily what I'm trying to get you to employ. There's a phrase that the Bible uses, staying your mind on God. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And what does it mean to stay your mind on God? Memorization and meditation. That's it. Memorization and meditation. Are you, like, use your 30 minutes, but don't just use your 30 minutes for 
Okay, good, read my chapter, close the book, off to work, off to school, off to whatever the daily activities are. Use that 30 minutes, read a whole chapter, find one verse out of all of it. Maybe it's just out of the reading for the whole week you find one verse, you underline it, you say it a few times to yourself, you write it on your hand, on a notepad, in a notes folder on your phone, and then you say, I'm, I'm just going to think about this today. You go to work, you have a, an irritating conversation with a coworker. What does that verse that I read earlier today have to do with this? How does this inform me in this, in this direction? You have a, a frustrating time with your kids or your parents at home. What does that verse that I, was talking, that I was talking to God about this morning have to do with what's going on right now? How does this apply to me? You have to work hard to store this inside of you. My wife and I, we have a dog. He's like, uh, he looks like a bear. He's, um, he's like over 50 pounds. He's a pretty husky boy. Um, his name's Yogi. Every morning I walk Yogi. Uh, he would love it up here. He loves the snow. We only get snow like once a year. Um, every morning I walk Yogi, and this is, this is my mindset, right? I, I put him on a leash. He drags me out of the house because he's running down the street. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his holy prophets in the scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his res resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the saints in his name all across the world. To those who are in Rome, all those who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, right, and on and on and on. I'm trying to stuff it in my heart as much as as I can. And I, I, I don't say that like, let all of us store that in our hearts, whatever. Find a passage of scripture, stay your mind on it. And every morning it's not, I mean, I'm trying to memorize a larger portion, so I'm going through it fast sometimes because I want to see what are my trouble spots, where can I kind of shore this up a bit. But other days it's just Romans 1, 26 and 27, right? I'm just thinking about that contrast of like, how does God's righteousness speak into the current cultural milieu of what's going on and what's accepted? Like, what does God have to say about this? I'm meditating on that. When you put the word of God away, it is going to inform you in incredible, in, in incredible fashions. It's going to change you and make you more and more like Christ. And again, I just implore you, it's, it's not about spending more time. Use the time that you're already committed and catalyze it. Like, let God take it further. As, as um, we talk about time, there was a student I talked with pretty recently. This was like aggravating, maybe want to bang my head against a wall, and just deeply saddening because it's a student who's struggling with some of the very issues we've been talking about. And I'm like, man, I, like you can ask me as many questions as you want. I'm trying to show you in Scripture where it talks about these things. Ultimately, you need to be talking with God. Like that's first and foremost talk with him, get, get what he is saying about this stored up within you. And over and over and over again, the excuse is, I just don't have the time. Like, I, I don't know, I'm just really busy. And about a week, uh, uh, maybe a couple weeks after we had that conversation, he came up to me and he's like, Brandon, I watched every Marvel movie and TV show, like within the last two weeks. So 20, uh, 27 movies, 16 TV shows. If you're like a Marvel nerd, you're like, no, the Ed Norton Hulk movie counts in the official timeline. So it's 28. But, and, and I mean, just like ridiculous amount of time spent watching these movies and TV shows. And I'm so deeply saddened for him because when he gets to heaven 
and God has him give an account for that idle phrase that he said, I don't have time, all that watching that stuff is going to do to serve him in the next life is preach against him. Right, God's going to say, you did not have time for my word. You had time for all of this fluff. TikTok, Facebook, news outlets. I mean, man, the list goes on. Like, I could tell you all my junk, Rocket League. I like to play that game a lot. Man, it just goes on and on and on. We can waste our time with so much worthless junk. You have to guard your mind with the scriptures of the Lord. The days are long gone of surface skimming the scriptures. Like we are in a day and age where we are being attacked on all sides from, from different prevailing thoughts, and we have to be equipped. We have to know how to use this word. John Piper said in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he said, Life is not about mastering many things, but being mastered by one thing. The Word of God. Has it mastered you? Does it own your life? Does it inform every decision you make? Is it stored deep down inside from where you can pull from it riches and treasures for the rest of your life? Proverbs 6, 20, 22, Solomon's talking to his son, and he says, I want you to keep your father's commandments, your mother's teachings. They're going to guide you here and there. When you awake, they will talk with you. That's the cool thing about Scripture. Like, yes, when I'm walking yogi, boom, yeah, I can, I can talk with God. I can talk with the Scriptures. But when I'm being tempted away from my Bible, because typically my sinful flesh and Satan is smarter than to tempt me right in front of this when it's open, when I'm tempted away from community, away from my Bible, got thoughts in one way or another, the Holy Spirit starts talking to me. And he starts using the scriptures that I've been trying to store up. And man, I just plead for all of us, store it up more and more and more, and you will draw treasures from it forevermore. They will talk with you. They will lead you. God has made provision for us. We are more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us. And he has given us this very great word. Paul, or excuse me, Peter says, we have everything necessary for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who saved us. Everything necessary. Don't need to go anywhere else. Let me pray for us, brothers and sisters. Father, I do pray this morning for, I pray for myself and in front of these friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and I, I pray that my heart would, would go out to you. I mean, I, I even confess, Lord, like I, I can say a few verses in front of them and make it sound like I'm spending all this time memorizing scripture, but God, hold me accountable to stay in it day in and day out. I pray for each of us, Lord, that we would stay in it day in and day out. I pray for someone in this room who has been intimidated to memorize scripture, that they would be empowered to do it and to trust that you will give them grace and the ability to store it away, that you will give them the, the riches, the graces, and the blessing to, to be able to pull from those verses for the rest of their lives, pulling out riches and treasures that will inform them. I pray, God, that the strongholds in our hearts would be destroyed by the weapons that you have given us, that we would submit ourselves to the lordship of your son. We would not be okay with the enemies running about in our mind and our hearts, and we would take the weapons you've given us, and we would make them captive to obey you. We would give them up to you and that you would change how we live and look and that it would make an impact in Burlington, Vermont, and the rest of Vermont, in all of the Northeast, in the world, Father. 
that holy living, the distinction of the gospel you have given us, would be the attraction. I pray, God, for us, and I thank you for what you are doing in this place, what you're going to continue to do. Make us look more like your son. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.